Hello listeners, my name is Austin Moraga, host of the Ironbound Chest, a new interview podcast that focuses on discussing monthly topics relating to D&D and TTRPGs. Each week I aim to bring on someone from around the community. Podcasters, streamers, world builders, writers, dice makers, map makers, mini painters, homebrewers, cosplayers, singers, artists, illustrators, crafters, collectors, creators, and listeners. The chest is slowly but surely being filled with amazing and wonderful things, and I invite you all to help me in this task. You can find me on Spotify and almost wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for The Ironbound Chest. You can even find me on Twitter and Facebook. So I hope you take the time to listen and to help me add some wealth to The Ironbound Chest. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old-school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Chapter 17 begins with a flashback in which we learn that the nobleman who's come for Eredin was brother to a man Swin had once held for ransom. If that were not bad enough, Swin's men had killed the hostage when he tried to escape, and, adding insult to injury, Swin had taken the ransom money anyway. Eredin, although barely a participant, had been there for the whole thing, and so was guilty by association. It seems that our rogue's checkered past has finally caught up with her. Also, in Chapter 17, Sheriff Marlock begins to untie the Gordian knot of problems that has fallen into his lap. He does so with his typical efficiency and cool-headedness. The dwarves will leave immediately. The party will be effectively banished from Burke, and Eredin will face the hangman's justice. Chapter 18, Part 1, Day 23, Midnight. Party Status All party members are at maximum hit points. Umura has memorized Hold Portal and Charm Person. Girios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds. In the barracks, Umura, Girios, and Kagan tried and failed to get some sleep. 
Sometimes they talked to each other, offering whatever supportive words they could think of, but mostly they were quiet, even Gyrios, and simply stared into the dark spaces above their beds. Harl, too, was wide awake, not only because he had a special fondness for Aradine, but also because he was waiting for something. Unlike the rest of the party, Harl was not under any suspicion of aiding Aradine in her subterfuge. Therefore, he was not required to sleep in the barracks with the others. By all rights, Harl should have spent the night riding in a pony cart with Thurn on the way back to the High Forge. The two had argued briefly about it before Thurn left in a huff, telling the younger dwarf, Do as you will. I wash my hands of it. Mulgi, looking not much better than he had when they rescued him, went with Thurn. After a few overharsh words of his own, Harl had headed back to the armory and demanded access to the rookery. He had spent the whole night there, first sending a letter to the High Forge, and then impatiently waiting for a response. A response that seemed with every passing hour less and less likely to come in time. And so, Harl, too, passed a sleepless night. By contrast, Maynard Bagari slept more deeply than he had in months. He and his mercenaries were using the emptied servant house of Lord Skelling, a very distant cousin of his. In Camertine, a tradition of hospitality dictated that resident nobles would feed and provide accommodations to likewise obligated and entitled visitors. Maynard at first had been turned away by Skelling's serving boy. Apparently his lordship was unwell and afraid he might spread his illness to his dear cousin. Skelling had his boy, who was new at the job, terrified to the root and barely able to stammer his way through a sentence, suggest that Magari and his men stay at the North End Inn. But Magari would have none of it and insisted they be put up. In the face of this stubborn refusal to leave, Skelling had ordered all of his servants, save for the cooking staff, home for the night and given run of their accommodations to Magari's party. High quality food and wine had made up for the shortfalls in furnishing and Magari had retired for the evening in the head butler's chambers quite drunk and only slightly offended. The cooking staff had been forced to sleep in the stables. As for Eridine, she spent the night in the single cell outside the armory. By the grace of all the gods, the stocks were unoccupied, and there was no guard posted nearby. She was alone, but for the occasional rat. Earlier, when Tor had ordered her to drop her bags and remove her armor, he had neglected to search her. When he put the manacles on her wrists, he said nothing, but she noticed that they fit quite loosely. He avoided making eye contact with her, and spent most of their time together actually biting down on his lower lip. The only words he spoke came just as he shut the door to her cell. I took an oath. I'm sorry. I would that it were not this way. And then he repeated. I took an oath. Before heading back into the armory and leaving her alone. Once the armory and the town around her had wound down to absolute silence, she went to work. She twisted at the waist and easily retrieved the purse tucked into the small of her back. Carefully, so as to not drop anything, she opened it and removed a pair of long, stiff wires. Lockpicking was not one of her strong suits. She had only limited practice with the skill. Swin had kept two practice locks back at the hideout, one a large padlock, and the other a small latching mechanism built into a chest. Eridine had spent many, many hours alone and under tutelage with each of them. If the lock to the cell door was in any way similar to one of those, escape should be easy. 
But if it was something unfamiliar, well, at least she had time on her side. She steadied her breathing, as Swin had taught her to do, and went to work. Eridine's chance to open this lock is just 20%. If she fails, she may not try again, so for our thief, this is a real Hail Mary kind of move. Not likely to succeed, but certainly worth a try. It might well be the difference between life and death. Let's make the roll. We're looking for a 20 or less on a D100. Here comes the roll. Dramatis Personae, Eridine. After they made love, Swin would often sit up in their makeshift bed, a woolen blanket thrown over a mound of pine needles, lean against the cave wall and reach for his lute. His voice was unrefined and imperfect, but to Eridine, it was the sound of love. She would have happily followed that voice into hell itself. Swin was a man of supreme optimism and exuberance. In contrast to his ability to rob and even kill without remorse, he often came across as childlike in his sense of humor and naive in his ideals. This was the Swin that Eridine loved. At least, that's as much as she would admit to herself. The notion that she admired or even enjoyed his dark side might have been more than her mind could handle. Matchy knew dozens of songs, jigs, love ballads, and epics. But for some reason, he preferred the melancholy ones tinged with a whiff of the grave. Tonight, he played one of his favorites. As he strummed the familiar opening chords, Eridine could hear her fellow brigands rustling in their beds, perhaps in the middle of some lovemaking of their own, or else just settling in to fall asleep to the sounds of their leader's voice, as the cave walls made it reverberate and, in the darkness, transformed their cavern hideout into a holy church. of edge of your seat adventure do you like dangerous jungles filled with the undead ancient dangers and sarcastic goblins do you want to hear five friends battle their way through both bad accents and the land of chults in the search of an insidious death curse 
Are you looking for a detergent that actually does what it promises? you answered yes to all of these questions, except possibly the detergent one, then do I have a deal for you! Listen to Trolls of the Two-Ton Bridges, an actual play Dungeons & Dragons podcast from the UK, playing through the Doom of Annihilation campaign. What's the cost? Nothing. It's free. Yes, you heard that right. Free to listen to on all podcast apps. Everyone loves it. Just listen to this person I've just met. Can you get that out of my face? See? So join us at the table every Tuesday with Trolls of the Two-Ton Bridges. Adventure. Chapter 18. Part 2. Day 24. Pre-dawn. Eridine heard the lock click but not by her hand. She had tried and failed. Many times over, she had tried and failed, knowing all the while that it was beyond her skill. As the sun had begun to rise outside her tiny cell, she'd heard the sound of men, the distinct sound of lumber being dragged nearby, followed by hammering, one man cursing, another coughing, the sound of men at work. They were building a gallows. They might as well have been putting up a barn, Eridine had thought, and she found that she was crying at a sudden feeling of deep and utter loneliness. Wiping the tears off her stinging cheeks, she had willed herself to be calm. But as the sounds of construction continued, she'd been unable to stop the tight knot of fear that started in her middle and began to turn and turn until it hurt. Somehow, it had been even worse once she had realized the construction noises had stopped. The sound of the lock was followed by the door being drawn open, and then her eyes were assailed by the slanting morning light. The man who came for her was not rough or rude, but solemn. It was Tor. He did not grab at her, but helped her to her feet and led her from the cell in dignity. She quickly saw that the earlier sound of construction had drawn a small audience of townsfolk. Some were likely just curious, others, as was plain by the look of gleeful anticipation on their faces, had ghoulish tastes in entertainment. Her friends were there as well. Kagan looked at her with a hollow expression. Umura stared at the ground. Angirios had his eyes shut as he mumbled prayers and thumbed the coin he used as a holy symbol. Dare she hope for one of his miracles? Behind the crowd, Erdine saw three men on horseback. One was rather fat. His skin was ashen beyond the point of sallow, and his hair hung wet and lank sticking to his skin with sweat. Another man, a thin and stooped figure, was covered from the shins up in a dark cloak. The hood, lined with white fur, drooped low, fully hiding the man's face in shadow. The third horseman was Maynard Magari. He seemed alert and impatient. Another gentle tug on her hands made her move her feet again, and now she was closing the short distance toward the newly erected gallows. The contraption was of rough-hewn, unsanded wood. Cobwebs still clung to the ends of it from where it had sat in storage unused for many months. Something about the coarseness of the device made it more real, more terrible. The knot in Eridine's stomach twisted yet again, and she stumbled. Tor was there to catch her. He led her to the gallows base and put a hand on the vertical beam. He gave it a shove, and it barely moved. 
Grimly satisfied, he turned to Sheriff Marlock, who now approached from the armory's front door, wearing his full uniform, chain of office, cape, long sword, and all. Marlock cleared his throat. <clears throat> Lord Skelling, as High Protector of the Township of Burke, the honor is yours. Would you say a few words? There came no response, and inevitably, every head in the audience turned to the large man on horseback. Skelling's eyes were like small, black beads. He did not appear to have even realized that he was being addressed. The cowled figure urged his horse beside the nobles and leaned over to whisper something. Skelling's mouth then opened and closed, making no sound. Eventually, his arm flapped up and came down a single time. With that, the pair on horseback turned their mount and began to trot away. Magari stayed with the crowd, looking at Aradine intently. Marlock seemed perturbed by Lord Skelling's actions, but took the motion as a sign to proceed. He'd heard that Skelling was ill. It appeared that the condition was worse than he'd realized. By your command, Lord Skelling, he announced, as if there had been an actual command. He turned to Aradine now, and when he spoke to her, he continued to project his voice so all could hear. Aradine of Rayford, he intoned. You are hereby found guilty of the crimes of murder by association, kidnapping, and consorting with known outlaws. On this day, you are to be hung by the neck until dead. However, if you confess your sins in front of these witnesses, the good people of Burke, you may be granted clemency in the form of a quick, clean death. These words must have been a cue, for the young boy who ran Marlock's errands now appeared through the armory door, carrying a small wooden stepladder. He was followed by a large man wearing a black hood, featureless, save for a pair of eye slits. He was holding a coil of hempen rope, tied into a noose at one end. Aradine looked into the crowd. They leered back. She met Kagan's eyes. They had a pleading look. He was nodding at her and mouthing the words, Do it. But Aradine would confess nothing. A few moments later, she felt the scratchy rope being placed over her head and drawn tight across her throat. The tiny, stiff fibers of the rope jabbed into her skin. She was vaguely aware of the rest of the rope being tossed over the gallows crossbar and pulled semi-taut. Before the executioner carried out his duties, Marlock called out across the audience to Maynard. Lord Magari of Brannan, as the accuser, you have both the final word and the right to offer mercy. Marlock pulled a dagger from his belt at the word mercy and held it in front of the audience so they could glean his meaning. This woman took my brother from me. She deserves no mercy, Magari told the crowd. Then he looked straight at Aradine and said, If you get lonely in hell, don't worry. I'll send your friend to meet you ere long. Proceed. At the word, Aradine's world exploded into agony as the executioner hoisted her off her feet and into the air by her neck. No amount of imagining the previous night could have prepared her for this. She actually felt her face turn red. Her neck burned as though a searing ring of red-hot iron had been clamped about it. Twin fires filled her lungs. She kicked hard and the sky pinwheeled above her. She kicked again and then could no longer feel her body. Tiny black dots filled her vision and her sense of hearing began to fade. Before it left her completely, she heard a familiar voice. Harl's voice. It sounded as though he were screaming through a pillow. Let her down! In the name of Lord Gledith Stonecarver, let that woman down! Let her down!
She didn't realize she'd passed out until hitting the ground knocked her back to consciousness. Harl was sprinting towards her. He held a tiny slip of paper, the kind frequently used by messenger pigeons, in his hand. He waved it over his head like a flag. His eyes, she saw, were red-rimmed and bloodshot. He was breathing heavily and labored to get further words out. By the command of the Lord of the High Forge, Cleneth Stonecarver, the following persons are commanded to attend an audience immediately. Kagan of Briarwood, Umura of Zaysha, Gyrios of Camranth, and Eredin of Rayford. He bent over double, hands on his knees, wheezing. Sweat poured down his face. He was smiling. Chapter 18, Part 3, Day 24, Noon. Party status. Harl, 8 out of 8 hit points. Kagan, 16 of 16. Eridine, 8 of 8. Gyrios, 14 of 14. Umura, 10 of 10. Spells available. Umura has memorized Hold Portal and Charm Person. Gyrios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds. The township of Burke diminished little by little as the cart trundled away. Kagan was fast asleep in the front half with Umura likewise asleep and with her head resting on his chest. Gyrios sat in the middle, now busy with a new set of prayers. Harl and Aerodine were in the rear with their legs dangling over the open back of the wagon bed. Harl had tried to put his arm around the young girl's shoulders, but, small as she was for a human, he couldn't quite reach and settled for patting her back. The two watched as civilization grew smaller and smaller, and eventually became as much at the end of their vision. After interrupting the execution, Harl had presented what he had termed a royal order to Marlock, who read it in full and sighed deeply. Marlock had dispersed the crowd and ordered the gallows dismantled. The companions had taken their leave after the grumbling crowd began to break up, and Marlock made his way toward what must have been a deeply unpleasant conversation with Maynard Wagari, who visibly shook with rage. Before departing the site of the gallows, the companions had collected their belongings from the barracks, including their cut of the take from the scouting expedition, and then made for the King and Purse Inn. It was a ramshackle old place on the southern side of Burke, where the pungent stink of the tannery was ubiquitous. Upon their arrival, Harl had the party wait outside while he entered, and then reappeared some minutes later with a pair of curly-bearded dwarves in tow. He introduced them as Falabar and Balifer Hillbottom before leading the party to their wagon. As half of the brothers' iron ore was yet unsold, it was decided that Falabar would stay behind in Burke to conclude their business and fill existing orders. Balifer begged for a few minutes to put everything in order and then set about lugging crates from their room and loading them in the cart. The boxes were followed by various sacks, water skins, loose pelts, and other necessities. 
The two ponies that pulled the wagon needed feeding and watering before they set out as well. Once supplies and passengers were loaded, Falabar bowed deeply at the waist to Harl and wished him well. There are more furs in the sacks if you fancy a nap on the way. He called after them, knocking twice on the back of the wagon with his knuckles. Raccoon belts make for a fine pillow. Balifer, already installed in the driver's seat, waved to his brother without turning around and whistled at the ponies. There was a little jerk, and then they were off towards the foothills of the windless rise. After the first few hours, Aradine was racked with coughing fits. It would be days before she would be able to swallow without grimacing in pain. But at some point along the road, away from Burke, she felt a tremendous weight lift away from her shoulders. The smell of the forest on the breeze never smelled so sweet. Bird song became music. Every yellow tuft of grass that went by was gold, and the clear sky with the sun directly overhead. It had never looked so blue. But golden things do not last. At first, she hoped it was a trick of her eyes, a distortion on the horizon. Eredine saw it before the others, but it was mere seconds before Harl grabbed her arm. Look! Dust! Riders are approaching Gyrios! He twisted and slapped the cleric on the leg. Wake the others. Tell them to arm up. Malifer, stop the cart. Unhitch the ponies. The little cloud of dust grew bigger and bigger, and then they could easily make them out. Four riders galloping directly toward them at full speed. In their lead was Lord Maynard Magari, unwilling to let justice escape him a second time. Beside and behind him rode his three mercenaries. The quartet of horsemen thundered toward them. Gyrios was reaching for his mason shield. I believe the time for talk has passed. Magari and one of his men drew swords as they approached. The other two carried spears, and as they closed on the party's wagon, the weapon tips lowered. The foaming horses did not slow down. Instead, the fighters only spurred them on ever faster. I don't think they came to talk, spat Harl. He hopped off the back of the wagon, buckled on his left pauldron hefted his axe, and waited to meet the charge. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy what you've heard and would like to support the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Here's one from Australia. Darren J. Maroney writes, I've been exploring solo role-playing more recently and Tale of the Manticore is an excellent example of an engaging story with interesting characters that all have their own background motivation and reasons for existence. A lot of effort and care has gone into crafting a world that's dangerous and brutal for the intrepid characters that have been thrown together in it. The interludes with explanations of the key NPCs and each PC really gives you an insight into their place in the story. Explanations of the world and other rule changes and additions give you a look under the hood at what makes the game tick. Tale of the Manticore really strives to capture the old school feel that early D&D had and with its own homebrew take on experience makes for a podcast worth your time. Thank you, Darren J. Maroney, for taking the time to write that. Thank you to the returning voice actors Jake Hendricks, playing Thurn, and Che Webster of the always excellent Roleplay Rescue, playing Maynard Magari. Also introducing Arun Velamuri, who joins the cast playing Falabar Hillbottom, the Dwarven Iron Trader. You can catch up with Aaron at his blog at ankleshot-woes.blogspot.com. Jake, Che, and Aaron, thank you so much. For rants, show notes, and occasional maps, character sheets, tables, and other items related to the show, please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. 
The adventure continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rules. Would you like to know more about some of the most influential role-playing games out there? Roll to Save is a podcast dedicated to the history of RPGs and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts from and at rolltosave.blog. We take a long hard look at the origins of some of the biggest games and their often turbulent histories. Roll to Save also looks at how modern games have been shaped by the games that came before. So, if you fancy delving into the fascinating history of role-playing games, visit rolltosave.blog or search for Roll to Save on your podcast directory of choice. You can also contact us at at SavePodcast on Twitter. Join us on a trip down memory lane. You might be surprised at what you learn.